and begin with a statement from the General Conference Administrative Committee dated 1996. It's a long statement. Stay with me. Family violence involves an assault of any kind, verbal, physical, emotional, sexual, or active or passive neglect that is committed by one person or persons against another within a family, whether they are married, related, living together or apart, or divorced. Current international research indicates that family violence is a global problem. It occurs between individuals of all ages and nationalities, at all socioeconomic levels, and in families from all types of religious and non-religious backgrounds. Family violence manifests itself in a number of ways. For example, it may be a physical attack on one's spouse. Emotional assaults, such as verbal threats, episodes of rage, depreciation of character, and unrealistic demands for perfection are also abuse. It may take the form of physical coercion and violence within the marital sexual relationship. The statement goes on. The Bible clearly indicates that the distinguishing mark of Christian believers is the quality of their human relationships in the church and in the family. It is in the spirit of Christ to love and accept, to seek to affirm and build others up rather than to abuse or tear one another down. There is no room among Christ's followers for tyrannical control and the abuse of power or authority. I read this statement in a classroom filled with about 80 people, Seventh-day Adventist people. It was in a class teaching for the School of Public Health at Loma Linda. Uh, it was in Russia, about 80 students there. And before I had read as far as I just did, hands began to shoot up in the room. There were about 15 pastors there, and one of the pastors was a regional leader among pastors. And so they recognized his hand first. Now, remind you, we're translating and so on. What he said through the translator, and I'm assuming everyone there understood what he said, was that uh, husbands beating their wives would not be such a problem if it weren't for the way that wives nag their husbands. And he went on at some length about this. Now, as he said this, I had a reaction similar to yours. I thought he was joking, but I soon realized he was not joking. No one in the room gave a smirk, shook their head. None of the women turned and looked at him and said, you're nuts. Nobody responded that way. And I was astounded. Another person later came up and said, if it weren't for the fact that my father beat me and I beat my children, we would never have turned out as good as we did. The church should not be making statements like this, he continued. Well, we'll do some meddling today. But first, let me share with you why I get passionate about this kind of stuff. I'm a convert to Seventh-day Adventism. I've come to think that that makes a little bit of a difference. Maybe it's just with baby boomers, but being a convert is different than having been raised in the church. Um, two things really grabbed me. 
I appreciated and was, was caught. I was struck by the interpretation of Scripture, by the reading of Scripture among Seventh-day Adventists. That grabbed me, the truths that we teach. Um, but the other thing is that people loved me into the church, and it was clear that they really, truly, deeply cared for me. Those two things made a huge, huge difference. If we can go on the screen with our first text, Ezekiel uh, 36, 24, it really kind of captures what happened to me. God grabbed my heart. I'll take, out of, uh, I'll take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and so on. On to the next verse. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and so on. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll take out of you the heart of stone that you now have, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. God changed my heart. And if you knew me before my conversion experience, you would say, yeah, he did. God really changed this guy's heart. I had all the intentions of going to live in the woods for the rest of my life. I was an Alaskan. I was in Alaska. I was going to live the life of a hermit. Anybody ever been inclined to live the life of a hermit? It's actually kind of a nice... <laughs> Those of us who are real introverts understand the attraction of, of becoming a hermit. God dragged me out of that, and he created in me an entirely new vision for my life, an entirely new vision. Um, and he called me to ministry, or what I take to be primarily concerned for others, living in a way that you're primarily concerned to others, for others. He called me in, into a ministry. I got married. I became a pastor. I had children. And I was in God's people, in his community of faith. But even then, life didn't turn out quite like I had scripted it, quite like he had created this vision for me. Life doesn't seem to turn out the way we plan it sometimes. Anybody have that experience? Um, and so over the years, what really kept me, and I, and I might have left my, like many others. We all know many people who, who have once uh, been caught by God's vision and, and then leave it later on. But what kept me through the years were the people and the relationships that I built in this church with you. Let me explain further. I, I think I am a typical convert, um, and oftentimes the force of the truths that we teach and learn and, and take as being very important don't keep us through those difficult times. Um, my friends and my classmates here at the Calamasa Church have. Over time, the truths remain precious truths, but the relationships and the people hang on to me in those tough times. When it's hard to get up in the morning, it's because I have friends that I can get up to who appreciate God, who love Christ, and want their hearts to be a heart of flesh. I love the contemporary issues class over here. I love it. It's a great place for a guy like me. And that's part of the reason I remain a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm proud to be one. Um, I get to work uh, with some fabulous colleagues. That's another reason that I am proud to be an Adventist and remain an Adventist. You've been introduced to three of them 
in the past few weeks, Carla Gober. Uh, no one puts it together uh, better than her. That is, healthcare ministry and theological richness and the idea of wholeness down at Loma Linda. No one does it better than her. She's, she's, people want her to come and talk to them all over the world. I, I rarely get a second invitation to preach. I really appreciate the fact that I can <laughs> preach every now and then here. But Carla's got invitations all the time, and she has to turn them down. Um, Rick Rice, I don't, I don't know if you understand how influential this person is. His book, The Openness of God, changed my life, absolutely changed my concept of who God was, and it's affected me for, for a couple decades now. Um, but do you realize how influential he is? Now, the Adventist Church stopped publishing his book. <laughs> the American evangelical Christian community picked it up, and they've been running with it ever since. Has profoundly and forever changed American evangelical theology, Rick Rice's book. If you Google open theology, those of you who know Internet, Google, open, just Google open theology. I did it last night just to see 22,400,000 hits, okay? And the, one of the th second or third one was Wikipedia, and I read the, the article there in Wikipedia, and it names Rick Rice as being the person who coined the term, open theism, okay? I get to work with him. That's fabulous. It's one of the reasons I remain a Seventh-day Adventist. There are great people around here. Um, I love uh, Lou Venden like few other people, and his sermons... Uh, have occasionally really, truly grabbed my heart and soul. A couple weeks ago, he grabbed my heart and soul. And 15 years ago, on another occasion at a professional meeting, he reached from the pulpit and he grabbed my heart. This church owes a great deal of debt to Lou Venden. He's been one of the most important pastors of our generation. Tremendous person and a, and a joy to work with. Seventh-day Adventist health care makes me proud to be an Adventist. I know it's where we work day in and day out, and sometimes it's just ugly, but I love Seventh-day Adventist health care. Right? It's a ministry. It's not a business. I struggle with my MBA students on occasion with this. It's a ministry, and it's a profound ministry. I go to Colorado as part of my job at the Bioethics Center because Centura Healthcare, the largest provider of health care in Colorado, is made up of Seventh-day Adventist hospitals and Roman Catholic hospitals. You heard me right. Together, they looked across the gulf and they said, if we don't help each other, we're all going out of business. And so Seventh-day Adventists and Roman Catholics reach across the gulf. That, that pushes me, right? <laughs> it pushes all of us. And it's an exciting place uh, to be engaged in the life of faith. Seventh-day Adventists have been in Afghanistan, not just since we invaded we were there a long, long time ago. Why? Because healthcare ministry pushes us beyond our bounds. It makes me proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. ADRA makes me proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist Development and Relief Agency makes me proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I want to first uh, put up on the screen, if you don't mind, the uh, Micah 6-8 text. Um, another thing before I move into ADRA that made me proud as I was preparing this sermon are the pioneers of Seventh-day Adventism. Um, I read about 
Christians arguing in favor of slavery. I'll get to that a little bit later. Seventh-day Adventists didn't do that. Seventh-day Adventists have a tendency to see something that is unjust and react and respond to it in God's grace. Micah 6.8, what does God require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Boils it down. And as an ethicist, this is one of the most important texts that we can possibly read together. My Adventist pioneers, strange as they were, and those of you who know and have read much about them, they're kind of quirky, right? They make me proud, in part because of the passion they had for justice. ADRA, Adventist Development Relief Agency, makes me proud as well. Here's a news flash from Mongolia, a new shelter for victims of domestic violence. Since April 10, victims of domestic violence in Selange, Mongolia, now have a safe place to go. The largest facility in the country with 20 beds is there because Seventh-day Adventists saw a need and they addressed it. They saw an injustice done to women and they addressed it. That makes me proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. That, that holds on to me even when I have an inclination to say, oh, forget it. I routinely get into difficult issues in my ministry. As an ethicist, these are the kinds of things I struggle with. Physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, I talk about abortion and homosexuality, interfaith dialogue with Muslims and others who we don't generally think very highly of at times. I love politics. And in America right now, politics and religion is a very, very rich and controversial issue. I get into politics. There's an amen. Thank you. I get into politics, and I get into things. Well, today I'm going to get into uh, meddling. We're going to talk about domestic issues, issues coming out of our households. I know that some will take it as meddling and won't like it. Some of you um, will be offended at what I'm about to say. Others of you will come to me like happened after the first service and praise God and thank me for saying what I'm about to say. I've come to expect and, and uh, understand that kind of reaction. Today what I want to do is to question the church's teaching that wives should submit to their husbands. A couple quarters ago we had a Sabbath school lesson quarterly that really did uh, assert that wives should submit to their husbands, and I think they did a fairly good job of it. But I just don't think we should teach it anymore. I do believe that we should continue to teach husbands and wives to submit to each other. Um, but I no longer believe in using Scripture to establish uh, what I call a household hierarchy where the husband is on top of the power structure. If we'll go to Ephesians on the screen, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, oftentimes this is where uh, people turn to establish, one among many texts, people turn to establish a kind of household hierarchy, a power structure within the home. I've started with verse 21 because I think this is an important text to begin with as opposed to 22. It says, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, let's just keep on reading through that. Well, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, the passage moves on and talks a little bit about children in relationship to their uh, parents. And then it takes up the relationship of slaves with their masters. Chapter 6. Uh, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know uh, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism in him. Now, I'm not an expert in biblical exegesis. I do know that it's important to take into the interpretation of a, of a passage the original context. And I think it's important in this context to understand that in the world, in the Roman world in which Paul wrote this passage, um, the only humans who were considered fully human were men. All others were not considered fully human. They were creatures and in many cases should be well taken care of, but they were not truly, fully human. And this has to be a part of it. They were valuable to men as property. All right? One of the important things. The hierarchy in the household that this passage notes was simply typical for the Roman world. And I appreciate my Sabbath school class again because we talked about this in between sermons. Uh, and, and it's continuing to evolve in my own thinking. There was nothing new or revelatory about the, of the majority of that passage. That's the way the Roman world lived. That wasn't a new message to Paul's readers. What was revelatory, what was burning in Paul's heart, was verse 21. Husbands and wives submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Remember Galatians chapter 3? I think we have that one as well, 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is revolutionary. This is radical, radical message for the Roman world. And that's what burned in Paul's heart. And I think that's the ideal. Now, we may have had to continue living in the society in which all of the rest of this uh, council makes sense. But I think Paul's ideal is that we be mutually submissive one to another. I take that the ideal relationship between a husband and a wife, a Christian couple, is one of mutual submission. Uh, let me say again, I believe the church should stop teaching wives to submit to their husbands, and I think the church should begin teaching us to submit to each other. But now I'm going to challenge even that. Okay, because part of the difficulty in this preparing of this sermon was the statistics that I found. If we can go to the statistics on the screen. Uh, in the United States, women age 18 and older, 5.3 million women suffer what they call IPV, intimate partner violence. Used to just call it man on woman. It's not just that 
anymore. Intimate partner violence, 5.3 million, or roughly between 22 and 38 percent. You know how studies are. Sometimes there's flux in the numbers. Regardless of the flux, that's an incredible large number of people being abused. And men age 18 and older, 3.2 million. All right? Um, now, remember that the earlier statement said that we're going beyond physical violence in our understanding of, of abuse, right? Uh, you, you read the general conference, or I read the general conference statement. Verbal threats, episodes of rage, uh, unrealistic demands, and so on and so forth. Well, perhaps given the data, maybe we should stop teaching submission at all. It seems we're living in a rather violent age. Now, what do you suppose the difference will be between general society and Seventh-day Adventist society? Does this happen amongst us? Let's turn uh, to the next data slide. Now, these numbers come from the North Pacific Union of Seventh-day Adventists, all right? And these uh, numbers are, are the result of a study that was done by the Social Work Department Chair at the Southern University about abuse in, in North Pacific. Uh, how many people suffered uh, in their home when someone threw, smashed, hit, or kicked something to frighten you? 27% of women, 13% of men. In the home, pushed, grabbed, or shoved you? 28% of Seventh-day Adventist women suffered this, 17% of men. 9% of Seventh-day Adventist women in the Northwest were beaten up by their husbands or their intimate partner. 2% of men, as it turns out, within Seventh-day Adventism, if this study is correct, men suffer higher levels of abuse than in the greater society. Did you hear that? Did you follow that? No awkward chuckles at the end of these numbers, is there? It's just ugly. The next slide. The totals, just skip down. No, 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 look, imagine this. Threatening to use a weapon on your loved one. 7% of women have suffered that. 5% of men. And then actually had the weapon used on them. The person that you vowed your love for, for the rest of your life. And then the totals below. Um, these numbers are our numbers, folks. They're our numbers. This happens here, and it's not just in the Northwest. How will we respond? Go to the next uh, statement, please, the next slide. How will we respond? This is what the authors, these are the authors of the study in the Northwest, Rene Drum and Linda Spady. This is how they find people generally react. More than half of our church members either do not know the extent of victimization in our congregations or deny its existence. How are we going to respond here? Um, let me um, take you to my basic argument. What I want to say is that if we know that, that 20 to 30% of the people we teach this to will take it home and abuse their loved one with it, then we ought not to teach it. Now, let me use an analogy to try to back that up a little bit. Seventh-day Adventists teach abstinence from the use of alcohol. Uh, we do not teach temperance. By definition, temperance is moderate, manageable use of alcohol. 
That's temperate use of alcohol. We don't teach that. In part because we don't think it would be responsible if we taught young people to drink if one of them became an alcoholic. Therefore, we don't teach temperance. We teach abstinence. And arguably, there are passages in the Bible that say temperance is all right. Moderate use of alcohol, right? Arguably. But we don't teach that. Why? Because we think it would be it would be a failure if one of the people we teach becomes an alcoholic. A similar kind of argument can go for the argument of abuse in the home. Um, Seventh-day Adventists have struggled with a number of things. Uh, Teaching slavery uh, is not one of them. I use the passage, um, 6, chapter 9, where it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Why do, why do we not teach this one anymore? Why do we not teach the sex slaves of Thailand to be good sex slaves, right? Um, we struggle with how Scripture presents these things and how to make it relevant in our time. Our Sabbath school class just got done struggling. Our Seventh-day Adventists literalists. Do we literally read Scripture, or do we, do we have to interpret Scripture in our time? And there's a rich struggle there. It can't be one or the other. Well, um, in, like I said, in studying this, how did Christians support uh, slavery? And uh, there's another passage, a quotation, uh, if we can put that one on the screen. This is from the year 1822, you know, Seventh-day Adventists started coming around 1844 and so on. Uh, Christians at that time, um, if you go down to the second sentence, starting here, that the holding of slaves is justifiable by the doctrine and example contained in Holy Writ and is therefore consistent with Christian uprightness both in sentiment and conduct. We struggle at times with what Scripture says. Seventh-day Adventists were abolitionists. We did not believe we should teach that part of Scripture uh, because we saw that as an injustice. For some of you, this question of domestic violence, this question of abuse in the home, is not just an intellectual question that Mark can leave with you uh, as a result of the sermon today. For some of you, it's a daily living hell. If the numbers are correct, there are many of you here who have suffered certain measure of of domestic violence and abuse. For those of you who are struggling with it today, stop it now. And it doesn't matter which side of it you're on, you can stop it now. You may be the abuser. Have you heard the, the latest interpretation of road rage? It's not called road rage anymore. Intermittent explosive disorder. I love the term. Huh? Sometimes we just explode and there's nothing I can do about it. No. I'd use a more base word if I had a little more courage today. No. There is no excuse. There is no justification. And citing Scripture as a justification just makes it worse. If you're struggling with it today, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastoral staff. Um, Find a stranger in the congregation. I don't care who and how 
you get out of it. Now is the time to stop and to start in a new direction. Now is the time to let God reach in and take out the heart of stone and place inside you a heart of flesh. Now is the time. There is some, there are some material in the foyer on the, on the far wall on the table there, some material about our own church's counseling center and a number of uh, locations where you can go to get help, uh, where you can go there and get help, uh, whether it be physically, you need uh, someone to separate you physically, or whether you need counseling help. Uh, for some of us, this is more than just an intellectual question to struggle with. Now, I told you I wanted to leave you with a question. I, I don't want to leave you with uh, an inability to enjoy lunch. Um, I want us to struggle with these things in a positive way as a community of faith. This didn't come easy to me, and those of you in our class in Contemporary Issues know I've been wrestling with this for months, many months. Um, but I want us to go back to our scripture text. And remember, Ezekiel, the heart of flesh, right? And Micah. Micah 6 8. He showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. The kind of compassion that Jesus walked with when he was here on earth is the compassion that God wants in your heart. He wants to place it there. Just as Jesus walked with a view toward justice and compassion when he was here, it's our time now to model ourselves after Jesus. And may God bless us to that end. Let's bow our heads for the benedict. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.